Okay, let me just give a quick recap um, where we are going. A couple of weeks back, we started our new sermon series uh, for this, um, for the rest of this year, actually, where we're looking at the Gospel of John. We plan to study the entire Gospel of John throughout 2014. We're going to do it here on a Sunday. We're going to teach through every verse of that Gospel, go through the entire lot. We're going to talk about it in our life groups. We're going to give out some questions that we can talk and discuss about, trying to, uh, some of the things that we've learned here on a Sunday. We encourage everyone in the church to, in their own personal times, to be looking at the uh, Gospel of John, reading through John's Gospel, uh, studying it, having conversations about it, listening to it. If you've got the Bible on audio, you can listen to it while you're kind of working out or on your commute um, to work. And so we really want to get into John's Gospel, learn everything we can uh, from it um, in 2014. We learnt in the first. Um, sermon of the series, um, what was the purpose of this book when John wrote it down, this sort of life of Jesus, and it says in John chapter 20, verses 30, it says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these ones are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the purpose of John wrote this gospel down was that so men and women in reading it would actually believe in Jesus. That's the whole purpose, and through that have life. And so we're studying it with the same purpose in mind, that we would believe in Jesus. You might say, well, I already believe in Jesus, or we hope through this process that will go deeper and fuller and wider, that your, your affection for Jesus, your love for Jesus, will increase as we go through that. If you don't know Jesus, we hope that as you listen to this uh, series and go through it, that you too two will get to know him and have a personal relationship with him. We've entitled the series, Who is This Man? Because that kind of sums up John's question. Who is this guy? Who is this guy he's writing down? And John says at the end, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's where we're going. So we'll be asking this question as we look through it. Last week we looked at the first 18 verses of the Gospel, the prologue, if you will, the beginning, the setup of the story. And the first 18 verses kind of contain pointers, hints that will be played out, themes that John will pick up as you go through um, the rest of the Gospel. We summed up the overall theme of the Gospel was, um, if you want to know God, then have a good, long, hard look at Jesus. That's what it's about. That's where it's going. That's who John introduces at the beginning. Uh, We find the central problem of the Gospel, we saw in verse 12, where that Jesus came to his own people, but they didn't recognise him. They didn't know him. They preferred darkness. It says they, they rejected him which is something we'll see played out as we go through the Gospel. We also saw in that same verse the good news. It says those who did receive him, those who believed in him, were given the right to become children of God. So there's the problem of of rejection of Jesus, but those who accept Jesus have the right to become children of God. And now we're going to kind of get into the the story proper. The the rest of chapter 1, from verse 19 to the end, is basically a build-up to Jesus beginning his public ministry. It kind of begins at the beginning of chapter 2, where we have the famous uh, wedding at Cana in Galilee, where Jesus turns water into wine. Very famous miracle. Um, and it builds up. That's kind of when his public ministry begins. It sort of said that was his first sign. And these, these verses at the beginning of chapter 1 are building up to that, the sort of the prelude to it. And what we're going to be looking at is a bunch of questions today. Questions that are raised from the passage, questions that we'll ask ourselves um, as we go through. But before we do that, let's read John chapter 1, verses 19, and we're going to go through to 34. It says, um, and this is the testimony of John. When the, priest, uh, sorry, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not 
the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they'd been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen him and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Okay, we've got two characters in this passage. The first one is named John. When we read John in John's Gospel, it does not refer to the writer. The writer, the author of the Gospel, the disciple John, does not actually ever refer to himself. He, he always refers to himself kind of, a, kind of obliquely as a disciple Jesus love or the other disciple. This John refers to one John and one John alone. That's John the Baptist um, that we know. And it says, um, it says at the beginning, this is the testimony of John. So this is John's testimony. John the Baptist's testimony, and we've already seen in the first thing that that word testimony, witness, is what John did. He gave witness to something he had seen, something being a part of. This is a further from the words of uh, the mouth of John himself, him talking about it. And it says, the Jews, which was probably a reference to the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem, who were kind of in charge um, at the time, and it says they sent priests and Levites. Priests were those who were descended from Aaron. You go back to Exodus, you find Moses um, and Aaron, um, they're sort of the first high priest. Those, the direct descendants of Aaron were the priests. The Levites were those of the tribe of Levi, which Aaron was one of them, but they're actually not directly descended from Aaron himself. So they would have served in the temple uh, kind of as musicians probably or the temple kind of police and guards. So they're basically from the temple, the priests being the descendants of um, Aaron and Levites being others involved. And they were sent down from Jerusalem to the temple to ask him a simple question, who are you? Now, a little bit of information about John the Baptist. He's quite a crazy um, figure. It was suggested that I would dress up as John the Baptist today to underline this point. I declined. Um, because it says in the other Gospels that he wore clothes of camel's hair and a leather belt and presumably had kind of long hair, uh, a long beard. It says he ate locusts and wild honey. Find that from Matthew and Mark. He was the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. He was Jesus' cousin. Um, he was doing that and he came preaching repentance that was his message if you read the other gospels that was he, he said repent the kingdom of God is coming and many people heard him came to listen to him many people were baptised uh, by him he was very critical of kind of the religious leaders the Pharisees and the Sadducees um, 
that we will encounter as the gospel goes on and about how they've been acting. And so he was preaching this message of repentance. He was critical of the religious authorities and he was quite a crazy figure. Um, but he was all, he's most noted for his kind of one significant act, which is he baptised Jesus himself. Um, and that's accounted for in the other three gospels. It's not mentioned here directly, but we'll come on to that and actually see it's mentioned implicitly um, in the gospel. And so you've got John the Baptist preaching, making quite probably a strange figure there, eating honey and locusts, um, wearing this strange kind of outfit and telling people to repent of their sins because the kingdom of God is coming and there is one coming um, who is coming behind him. And so a lot of fuss would have been caused by him. The crowds would have gone across the Jordan to listen to him. The people in Jerusalem think, aye, aye, what's going on here? Let's find, send people to find out. And so they send this delegation and they go to John and they say, right, who are you? Who are you? And he starts by telling them who he's not, which is helpful but not altogether helpful. If you ask me who I was and I said I'm not the Prime Minister, you're like, well, that doesn't help me. You know, who are you? But he starts that way. He says, he first, he says in verse 20, he says, he confessed and he did not deny but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. Now this was a, a big deal for the Jews at the time. They were waiting for their coming Messiah. They were, there was this expectation, we looked at it in the first time, that they were, they were expecting someone to come and to restore the kingdom of Israel. There had been many, many Old Testament prophecies and there was this expectation here. The Messiah is going to come and he's going to sort this out. He'll kick out the Romans, he'll establish the nation of Israel and we'll be able to kind of be our own people again like it was in days of old, like in the days of David and Solomon, the, the old kings that they revered. That's what it's going to be like. That's what it's going to be like. And they, and they hear about John. And they say, well, this guy's preaching on the other side of the Jordan. And he's gathering crowds and he's preaching repentance. He's saying, make the way. Is, is he the one? Is he the one that we've been expecting? So they go down there and they ask it. And I don't know, have you ever been mistaken for somebody else? Have you ever had that kind of process where people think you're someone else? Or say you look like somebody else. I've, had, I've, I've born across most of my adult, teenage and adult life that I look like certain other people. And people have said it to me repeatedly. And there's one individual, you can judge yourself whether you think they're the same, that I've been told in so many six different kind of environments from college all the way through life, even to an incident a couple of years back where I walked into a photography studio with Melanie and Levi. Ash wasn't born then, with her brother, sister um, and their children to have photos here. And I literally walked through the door and the guy just went, you look just like... And I'm just like, oh, for crying out loud, I thought I'd left that behind in college all those years ago. And the man that I've been told I looked, I looked so much like is um, the actor-comedian Hugh Laurie. And I, I got to a point in college where they called me Hugh. Like, Stuart died, and I was just Hugh. And I literally I walked into this photography studio a couple of years ago in Wokingham, and the, I walked through the door, and the guy just went, you look just like Dr. House, which is a character played by Hugh Laurie, if you've watched that thing. And I'm like, seriously? Do I really? I am not Dr. House. I am not Hugh Laurie, but it was one of those things. And John was acting in a way where he could have looked like the Christ. Are, are, you, the Christ? are you the one we've been expecting? Because that, if he was, for the, the Jewish people, that's it. Kind of, their prayers had been answered. He was here. But John states emphatically, he said, I confess and don't deny, but confess. He said, I am not the Christ. I am not the one that you've been waiting for. I'm not the one uh, that, that, that has been prophesied about in that sense. I'm not, I'm not the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. Well, then they said, you know, okay, if you're not the Christ, then they ask some strange things. They say, are you Elijah and you're the prophet? Which is kind of like, well, if you're not the Christ, 
they, they're the next who they ask, which needs a bit of explanation. Why would you ask if you're Elijah? Because he's a guy who died hundreds of years ago. Now, if we remember in the Gospels, you remember the, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus goes up the mountain. He takes um, Peter, James and John. They go to the top of the mountain and it says his glory is kind of revealed. And he appears on the top of the mountain in radiant glory. Who appears with him? Two ultimate characters. Elijah and Moses, representing the law and the prophets. And so they ask, are you Elijah? The reason being is because in kind of their history, these guys were, were huge figures. They weren't the Messiah, but they were, they were right up there with prominent men of faith who did amazing things by the hand of God. Uh, and then they say, are you Elijah? Because there's a, there's a prophecy in Malachi, Malachi 4, that says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So there was an expectation before the Christ comes, Elijah's going to come back. Elijah's coming. So they're like, well, okay, you're not the Christ. Are you Elijah? Have you returned? And the interesting thing about Elijah, if you read in 2 Kings 2, Elijah didn't die in a kind of a natural way. He was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire, it says. Elisha, his kind of, his, um, his kind of protege, his guys who was with him, saw him go up. And interesting, where did that happen? Across the Jordan. <laughs> Same kind of area. So like, well, if you're not the Christ, are you Elijah? Have you come back? He says, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm not that one. Um, interestingly, Jesus, though, if you read the other Gospels, does identify John in the role of Elijah, actually. John obviously didn't see it for himself. But Jesus actually says he, he served that purpose. But John is saying, I'm not actually Elijah, like reincarnated, come back. I'm John, so I'm not that. And he said, are you the prophet? Reference to Moses. Moses is a great prophet uh, who gave them the law. In Deuteronomy 18, it says, uh, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet from among you. And so there was an expectation this prophet like Moses would come back. Say, well, if you're not Christ, you're not Elijah, are you, are you the prophet? And he actually says, no, I'm not. I'm not. And if we go back to verses 6, 7, and 8 in the prologue, actually, John was just a witness. I was someone to witness, to point, to tell what I have seen. And so these guys are a bit exasperated. They're like, all, all we've got is no. You're not them, you're not him, you're not him. Well, we've got to go and tell the guys who sent us something, who are you? And he says, he quotes um, Isaiah 40, verse 3, and he applies it to himself. And all three of the other Gospels do this as well. It says, I'm a voice that cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This passage in Isaiah, in Isaiah 40 was believed about the coming of the Lord and he identifies himself as that voice. I am the voice crying in the wilderness saying, get ready. He's coming. I'm not the one, but I'm, I'm standing here saying he is coming so you need to be ready. That's why he's preaching uh, repentance. Um, interestingly, if you carry on in that, verse in, uh, that passage in Isaiah and get to verse 8, uh, 40, uh, Isaiah 40 verse 8, it talks about the word of the Lord and we've come across the word already in verse 1 of this, so this idea of Jesus being the word. He's saying the word of the Lord will stand forever. So John is very much in this kind of line of actually, I'm getting ready for the coming of the Messiah. Now, he said they've been sent by the Pharisees, uh, these people, and, they, and he asked the question, actually, why are you baptising? The Pharisees will come up about, I think it's 19 times in John, John's Gospel, so we're going to meet them a lot as we go through this. And the Pharisees, they're an interesting group. They were formed out of a concern for declining spiritual standards among the Jewish people. So they were, they were incredibly zealous for God and they loved the Lord and they wanted the people to follow uh, the Lord. And they um, attributed, um, when the, the, um, the nation was taken into exile in Babylon, we looked at that when we preached through a bit of Daniel, 
Um, he said the, the kind of the standards dropped then, and when they came back from exile, they were really concerned about you know, the spiritual state of the people. So the Pharisaical group was, was born, and they loved the law, and they studied the law, and they, as they interpreted the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law, they found 613 commandments, 248 positive and 365 negative, and they sought to teach them and to make the people live by them uh, because of, of their love for God and love for his word. The scriptures, they believed in the supernatural, they believe in angels and demons, they believe in life after death, um, the resurrection, all these things. They sound, interestingly, not too dissimilar to the types of churches and people we are who love the Lord and want to see people come to know him and serve him. Um, at the time, the, um, the uh, Jewish historian Josephus says there are about 6,000 Pharisees in, kind of in that area and most of them were loved and admired by the people. So they were a religious bunch that wanted to love the Lord and so they were coming to check out who Jesus is and as we go through the story we'll find out more about them and we realise actually how if your you know, love for the Lord is misplaced and you begin to legalism it can be extremely dangerous and they, they ask John a question and what they're actually interested in is, is his authority it says you're baptising people but effectively saying why are you dying or why are you doing this because baptising was an un- unknown thing when people converted uh, to Judaism they were often baptised into the new faith. That was just that was a normal practice. Someone converted to Judaism and they got baptised. However, um, that was usually a self-administered thing. Someone would actually baptise themselves into the new faith. But it says, but John was baptising people and he was baptising Jews. So you know, this had a problem because they hadn't, you don't, if you're a Jew, you don't need to convert to Judaism. You are one. And the Pharisees come along going, why are you baptising these people? Especially if you're not Christ or, the Eli- or Elijah or the prophet. Where does your authority come from? And if we read the Synoptic Gospels, and it's hinted at in John, John from very much his authority came from God. He was a man sent from God, it says in the prologue. He, felt, he says later, God spoke to me. God's called me. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And what John is addressing here, which is, will come out more and more, especially when we get to kind of chapter 3 in John, he's actually saying, Being a Jew, your ethnicity is not enough. Who your father is or your great-great-grandfather tracking back to Abraham, it's not enough. You know, what you're born into, the country you live in, there is a personal response you must make to God yourself. And that's why he's calling the Jews to repent. He's saying it doesn't matter that you're in the right crew, you've got the right ethnicity, you go to the temple, actually you have to have a heartfelt response to God. And Jesus talks about this, about being born again. And actually that's what you've got to be. He's saying, and he's putting a finger on an issue of personal faith, which will conflict hugely with the Pharisees and their kind of what they, what their view of God is. And he's, he's saying, my authority comes from God, and I'm calling people to personal repentance, personal faith. And he says, I baptize you with water, John says in verse 26, but among you stands one you do not know. So here comes the pointing. So this is what John's job is. I'm the one who's the voice, I've got to say it. And he says, he comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Now, John says, I'm going to point to the Messiah, I'm the voice, I'm preparing the way for someone coming. And I've been sent by God, so I know, who's, I know where my authority comes from. This is what I'm doing. But he makes an interesting statement here, that in that culture, a student would go and work with a teacher, go and, go and be with a teacher. He looks at it in the first sermon, and that's what they do. They go and live with the teacher, and they'll be part of his kind of group that he taught and they would live with him and they would eat with him and they would travel with him and the, t- the student would be like to a teacher almost like a slave so effectively he would do everything for the teacher you know whatever the teacher asked he would do that would be kind of his role as he learnt but there's one thing the student would never do because it was deemed too low 
it was deemed too kind of menial, and that was untie his teacher's shoes. And John is saying, actually, there's one coming who is so great and so powerful that I'm not even worthy to do the job that students wouldn't normally do because it's too low. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He's so far beyond me, so greater than me, that I can't, I'm not even worthy to do that job that a normal student wouldn't do for his teacher anyway because it's too menial. And then when we bear that in mind, let's think about John chapter 13. What did Jesus do after supper? He took off his outer garment, put a towel around his waist, took a bowl and went and washed his disciples' feet. So John's saying, this guy is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to untie his feet. Yet the one he's talking about stripped himself down and washed the feet of his disciples. What huge humility that Jesus showed there. And it says all these things took place in Bethany. Now the reference to Bethany, we we know Bethany because it's the home of Mary, Martha and Lazarus. We'll meet them as the gospel goes on. Just outside Jerusalem on the road to Jericho. This is a different place. There's a big scholarly debate which I won't bore you in. But this is on the other side of the Jordan uh, near where Elijah went to heaven. So it's actually a different place to the Bethany that we're going to come along to and meet. So there's a bit about John the Baptist. Who is John the Baptist? He's the voice. He's the one pointing to the Messiah. Now the next day it says, let's look at the next question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? It says the next day Jesus, uh, he saw, John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What we've got here is a culmination of days. If you read the next few paragraphs, they keep saying the next day, the next day, the next day, and then eventually that ends with the, the, Cana, the, the wedding at Cana and Galilee at the beginning of chapter 2. So we've got a series of events that John is recording one day after another that's going to result in this wedding. And John sees Jesus coming. Um, and what we find actually, John doesn't record the baptism of Jesus, which the other three Gospels do, but he actually refers to it in just a minute. Of actually, So he, John is he's saying, yes, John the Baptist did baptise Jesus, but he doesn't directly deal with it. And Jesus, John sees Jesus coming and he makes a statement about it. He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now before this point, the Lamb of God was not an obvious title for the Messiah. It was something that kind of John started um, that knew. But for us as Christians now, it's a very common title. And it, it comes up again and again in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament. And two things would have probably been in John's mind as he said this. You've got, on one hand, it's, it's a strange thing to say, but apparently there was an apocalyptic lamb. An apocalyptic lamb. In Jewish literature at the time, there was this idea of the lamb who was um, a mighty warrior. Um, which isn't very lamb-like, but apparently this lamb was a mighty warrior and would bring judgment uh, on his foes and destroy the enemies of God. And actually we see this lamb turning up in Revelation. So it's, it's actually present in our Bible. It says uh, in Revelation 17, uh, 14, it says, They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords, king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So there's one element. There's this mighty warrior, powerful king, lamb, On the other hand, you have the sacrificial lamb that turns up throughout the Bible. We have the the one that God provided for Abraham when he went up the hill with Isaac. And Isaac said, we don't have a lamb with us for the sacrifice. And Abraham said, the Lord will provide. Then God said to Abraham, you're going to sacrifice your son. And at the last moment, he provided the, the ram to be a sacrifice. We have the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 the defining kind of moment of the nation of Israel where they come out of slavery in Egypt 
and you have the, the Passover festival where a lamb was brought, uh, was killed, they ate uh, the lamb, they put the blood on the lintel and the doorposts and God passed over judgment, killing the firstborn of every family that didn't have it. So we have that, that lamb that was sacrificed that the people could go through. And then we have in Isaiah 53, we have the, um, the suffering servant, um, it's called, and we have the lamb there that is led like um, a lamb to the slaughter. And it, is, it dies in, in its place and it is, it is um, a defeated kind of foe. It is a very sort of tragic picture. So we have the conquering lamb and we have the sacrificial lamb coming together in this, um, this statement about who Christ is. And John makes very clear this is the lamb of God. This is provided by God. It's not provided by man. Just like Abraham, uh, the lamb, ram was provided by God. And even in the suffering, um, in Isaiah 53, that suffering servant is a servant of God. It's God's provision for him. And then he says, um, this lamb is to take away the sin of the world. So there's no distinction there. He's not talking about taking away the sin of the Gentiles or the Jews or in not particular groups. Actually, this is the sin of the world. It's not about ethnicity or socioeconomic group. It's, it's everybody. And he's dealing with the ultimate problem. If you ask a Jew at that time what was the, what was the real problem, they'd have probably said the Romans. They're the problem. Get them out so we can you know, be our own people again. And actually the problem is man's rebellion towards God's sin. Man's desire to be number one and not to be under the God who created him. And that, God, that problem is universal. It's for every man, woman and child all over the world who's ever lived. And uh, Jesus came to deal with that. And he said, this is the one of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. So there's a reference there back to the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. So he's saying Jesus actually came before me even though John's older than him, and he's saying, this guy came before me, and he makes this announcement, this is the one. And then he, he gives a bit by way of an explanation, verse 31 onwards. He said, um, interestingly, John didn't know who Jesus was up to a point. He was his cousin. I wonder if John ever beat him up. I don't know, he was older than him, he was bigger than him, probably. You know, did he ever, when they played, you know, bully him a bit? You don't know. But John would have known Jesus as his cousin growing up um, uh, as, as they were. But it says, I didn't know him. For this purpose, he came baptizing in water that he might reveal to Israel. Then he says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remain on him. So when John baptized him, there was a moment of revelation. And if we read the other Gospels, we know what happens, isn't it? Jesus came out of the water and it says the Holy Spirit came on him like a dove and then there was a voice, wasn't it, from heaven. The Father saying, this is my son. This is my son and I, I love him. And so John is actually saying, I had this revelation. I was called to prepare the way for the one coming. I wasn't, didn't know who that person was, but then actually I saw the Spirit of God fall on him. Reference to Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, anointing me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus applies that text himself in Luke 4, at the beginning kind of his public ministry. And so there's the Spirit. John said, I saw the Spirit fall on him. But he makes an interesting statement. He says, and remain on him. The Holy Spirit was poured out in the Old Testament many times but it was usually for particular people at particular times for a particular purpose, to do something. The Spirit of God came on the guys who built the tabernacle, you know, to have artistic power, and men and women to lead armies and stuff. But it said the Spirit of God came and it remained on him. Got a picture of the Trinity there with Jesus, God the Son, the Holy Spirit coming on, and there would have been God the Father speaking out at that baptism, saying, this is my beloved Son. And actually, John would have had this revelation, he's the one... <laughs> The Spirit came and it remained on him. It didn't leave him, unlike others uh, of, of old. It remained on him. 
And it says at the end there, I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Again, that word witness. We looked at it last week. That was what John was. He was a witness. He was just to speak about what he'd seen. And he'd seen the Spirit of God fall on Jesus and remain on him. He said, this is the one. God has revealed it to me. And he describes him as the Son of God, which, which what he would have heard the Father say at the baptism. That kind of, this is my beloved Son. So we've seen who... Uh, John the Baptist was. We've seen who Jesus was as identified by John. And now there are three, questions, uh, three quick questions out of this I want to um, ask us. The first one is, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? John had a pretty clear idea. He knew he wasn't. Christ, Elijah, the prophet, very clear about that. I am not that person. Well, they said, well, go on then, John. Who are you then? He said, I am the voice. I'm the voice that one crying in the wilderness makes straight the parts from the Lord. And if we examine that passage and think about the voice, I don't know if you ever realised what your role is as a Christian, as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, because actually we too are the voice to this generation. We're the voice to this generation who, who have to speak out about Jesus. It says in Matthew 28, Jesus speaks to his disciples, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So there's a very clear role there to go and be that voice and to teach. In response to that teaching, we baptise, we go to all the nations of the world. We have a role to do. It says at the beginning of Acts, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my, what's that word? Witnesses. Same word again, in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We're the ends of the earth, we don't count in the first ones. We're here. But we're to be witnesses and to speak out about what we've seen and what we've heard. It says in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect. So it's, we are being be prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We are called to be like John, to stand up and speak and proclaim and speak out that message. There are other verses that we could pull out of the Bible that basically say the same thing. We are to talk, we are to be that voice crying out and saying this is the Christ. This is the one. We know who we're not. We're not the answer. <laughs> well, are you the answer? You no, know, we're not the answer. Jesus is the answer. We'll point to someone else. Any accolades put on us? Well, you're the one. You're my guru. You're the one. No, no. It's all about Jesus. We're always going to point to him. He's the one that you need to be looking at, not us, but we're the one who's going to be telling everyone to do that. Whatever environment we find ourselves in, in our workplace, in our friendships, in our homes, our job is to be speaking out about Jesus. And I'm not decrying actions. Faith without works is dead, James says. So there are things we are to do, demonstrate the love of God in action. But actually, we need to be able to speak and communicate what we are to do, just like John did. The second one question I'll ask you is, do you know who Jesus is? Do you have a grasp who Jesus is? The, um, the, the reason John put this gospel down is that we would have this understanding of who Jesus is and it would grow and mature and, and deepen. And there are three things that I just want you to just remind you about who Jesus is. Number one, he is superior. John says, Jesus was before him. 
Jesus was beforehand, and we saw that in um, chapter 1. Jesus was, says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So Jesus is pre-existent. You know, he exists before the foundation of the world. Everything we know, he was there. He, he said everything was made through him. Everything was made through him. I mean, everything we can see, and we can't see whether we need a telescope. There's been a bit of fuss recently you know, about some supernova they saw in the sky. You know, wow, there's a supernova. And you think, well, God put that there. He knew it was coming. He's not surprised. He created all those galaxies and stars and with you know, lots of zeros on the end of how far away they are and how many there are. He put them there. And even in, if you go down to the smallest kind of atoms and cells and all these things, God created it all. And he says that he is ultimately unworthy to serve Jesus, even in the lowliest of roles, even in the, the sandal untying, strap untying role, which was just the most menial job for a servant, a slave. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. All my righteousness, all my good works, all the things I've done, all the things I feel like I've earned, I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's shoelaces. That's, that's kind of where I see Jesus is superior. He is greater. He is above us. He is God. He is God the Son. He also says um, Jesus is Saviour. Jesus deals with the problem of sin. The Bible says, spiritually speaking, we are dead. So that when we preach through Ephesians. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. And dead means dead. You know, not slightly alive, dead. You cannot know God. You need God to, to, to awaken us, to cause us to be born again, the Bible says. We'll look at that in John chapter 3. We were dead in our sins. We are rebels before God and rightly under his righteous judgments. We can't even keep our own standards, let alone God's. Think about the things you set for yourself, your own moral code. I won't do this, I will do this. Even things we set for ourselves at the new year, you know, those New Year's revolutions. I'm going to do this. Yeah, how many people have failed already, you know, in doing those things? We can't even meet our own standards. We cannot save ourselves. We need a saviour. We are dead men and women and we need someone to bring us to life. And only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. He's the one who died on the cross in our place, bore the penalty for our sin, raised to life um, with God. And only, only through him can we know that. So we need a saviour and it's Jesus. And the last one there is he's the son of God. He is the son of God. John actually testifies that right at the end. He is the son of God. God the son, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is beyond a good moral teacher, you know, an example to live by, all the stuff that's labelled on him, basically to try and reduce him in size. People put things on him to try and make him smaller when actually we should be making him bigger. He is God. He is without limits. He is inexhaustible in kind of his depths and who he is and what he's capable of, his power, his knowledge. He is the creator of all things. He is God the Son and that's who he is and we need to know who Jesus is and not compromise on that. John was very clear on who he was. He knew all about him. He said, I'm not going, I know who I am, I know who I'm not, and I know who Jesus is, and I'm going to tell everyone. I'm not going to back down. And the last one, do you know what to say? Do you know what to say? Because John had a message to bring, and he was clear and uncompromising in that message. John was a witness. That word has come up again and again. And even the other word that's to do with kind of legal uh, language is the word testimony. If you're on the witness stand in a courtroom, you give your testimony, which is basically what happened, what I saw, 
what I know to be kind of the truth because I was there and I saw it. And we are called to do the same. We're called to do the same. We're called to just tell people what we know, what we've seen, what's happened to us, how Christ has impacted our life, how God saved us, how he's changed our life around, what he's done, what we've seen, what we have experienced. And we're always to bring it back to Jesus. Always bring it back to Jesus. Because that's what John did. He pointed, look, there he is, behold the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. He didn't say, look at me, he said, look at Jesus. He kept pointing to him. Because ultimately, Jesus is the answer to everything. You know, you ask questions in church, people ask questions of faith. What about this? What about suffering? What about kind of evolution and creation and this issue and that issue? Ultimately, the answer is really simple. Jesus... (laughs) In a roundabout way, that's where you're going to get back to. It's all about him. And so we keep pointing to him and ultimately people will have um, an experience of Christ and they'll either accept him or reject him. So what are we going to do with this? Last little bits to hopefully encourage you and earth this. If you haven't started getting into John's Gospel, please do so. If you're part of the church here and you're regular attending, I encourage you, get into John's Gospel. The reason is we're not going anywhere for at least a year. So it's going to be John's Gospel. So it would probably be good if you read along. Um, do it um, in your own times. Listen to it. Um, read it. I'm currently, I've read through the Gospel a couple of times, kind of straight through. I'm now kind of doing one chapter a day, just trying to read it through slowly, out loud, to kind of understand it, get into it. When I've done that, I'm going to move on to trying to go through it bit by bit, asking myself questions about it. Who is this man to try and really understand it? And so if you haven't got into it, please do so. Just pick away, start studying it. Um, start talking to people about it as well. I've heard lots of people, uh, some people say it to me, others I kind of hear reported speech saying, you know, people are saying they're, they're liking it, they're learning it, which is great. When you're studying God's Word, people are saying, I'm learning stuff for it. It's always encouraging. If you start studying God's Word and you're like, I'm getting nothing out of this, I rest assured you're at fault, okay? Just, just so you know that. There's nothing wrong with the Bible. <laughs> You're the one who needs to kind of make a change somewhere. But please, it's not too late to start. Get into it. It will do you good. It will do your soul good. It will stir you up. It will build your faith up. It will increase your affections for Jesus. None of this is bad things. So I encourage you, please keep um, getting into John's Gospel. We asked the question at the Life Group last week was actually to share how you're doing. Are you getting into it? Are you enjoying it? What are you doing? How are you studying John's Gospel? I hope you are getting into it and enjoying it. The last one, um, practice telling your story. What we're going to do in life groups this week is if we're going to be the voice and if we're the ones who are going to have to speak out, uh, we need to kind of know what we're going to say uh, and, and it'd be good to be ready when that moment comes when someone asks you, you're a Christian, why are you a Christian? You go to church, why do you go to church? You know, what's that about? And it'd be good to be able to have an answer for that in a succinct kind of way. And so this week in our life groups what we're going to do is... Um, uh, we're going to have a timer. Uh, I think two minutes is a good timer. Um, and you're going to have a go at telling your story in less than two minutes. If you go over two minutes, everyone's going to yell at you and say, shut up. No, that could be good. But do, it's good to be succinct because sometimes if people ask you a question, they might not want a long answer. So you want to kind of give them an opportunity. Just give them a brief answer. And so when you're talking about what God's done with you, and we'll talk about what God's done in your life, all you want to do is give testimony of what God's done for you. You're a witness. This is what happened to me. If you saw an accident... You know, a car crash and the police officer comes up to you and says, what happened? You just tell them briefly what happened. That was it. You just tell them your experience. You wouldn't tell them about other stuff you didn't know, where the guy was driving to or where it's come from. You're not you're interested. You, just, you saw the event and you'll talk about it. And it's the same with when you're telling your story about Jesus. It's good to talk about briefly what happened before 
where you were, what happened, how did God save you, and then kind of what's happened as a result. And that's kind of a simple format to keep in your mind. So in Life Goods this week, we're going to have a go at this. I'm giving you the heads up now so you can start thinking. So when you turn up Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights, like, uh, you know, we'll give you a bit of breathing time to kind of, you know, get together over dinner and think, okay, how are we going to do this? Of course, and then it's going to be, then, then the clock's going to be on. We'll go around um, to it. I'll try, it's, not going to be, it's not going to be that scary, but it'll be fun. See if you can do it. And it's good just to, to because what I find is when we do this, do this kind of exercise, I've done it in other places at other times. One, I find it encourages me because it reminds me of what God's done in my life and it helps me. But what I find incre- fascinating is hearing everyone else's story of how God transformed their lives. Because there's people I've known, you, you know, years, and you suddenly realize, I didn't realize that aspect about your story. Because unless you were there at their conversion and knew them, when you meet them, you just kind of assume you're a Christian, aren't you? And you just get on with it, you know. So it's shorthand for, if you say, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. Oh, great, we're Christian. It's shorthand for an awful lot of stuff that's gone on in your life. What you were like beforehand, how God broke in, saved you, how your life has been transformed. And sometimes you don't ever actually get to hear that because you're never in a position where I wasn't there when you became a Christian, you weren't there when I was became a Christian. We kind of, we missed that part of our journey. We're, we're now beyond and we're going somewhere else. It's good to look back and remind it. So I always find these exercises brilliant, just listening to everyone else's story and actually thinking, God, you're amazing. Because it never feel, fails to amaze me how God saves people in different ways, from different backgrounds. It's just stunning. People get saved when they're very, very young. Some people are you know, saved in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s. People saved out of, you know, Christian religious homes, some people who have no experience of church whatsoever, the Bible, Jesus, and yet God does something and suddenly, whammo, they're, they're born again right in front of people's eyes. It's amazing. Um, so that's what we're going to be doing this week. So be thinking about that. Practice telling your story. So when God um, opens up an opportunity um, in the near future, you are ready um, to give an account for the hope that you can call, just like John. Okay? Amen? Amen. Do you want to stand up and I'll pray and then we will worship the Lord together. Alright, I just want to close your eyes. Let me just pray and then I'll hand over to Matt um, to lead us in worship. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for the example of John. Lord, I want to thank you for his, his testimony, Lord, that we just got to read about. Lord God, I want to thank you that you spoke to him and called him, Lord, to that ministry. Lord, I want to thank you for his ferocious courage that just preached the message you give him, given him, Lord God. He didn't try and distort it and make it about himself. He was very clear who he was and where he stood uh, before you, Lord. And I thank you, God, you've called us to that similar ministry of proclaiming something. It's not about us. It's a message that you've given us, Lord, and we're just merely to point to somebody else. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you came. Lord, that you revealed yourself. You revealed yourself to John there, you know, kind of out of the blue. You're the one because the Spirit of God remained on you. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that you came. I want to thank you that you lived the life, the perfect life, Lord. I want to thank you that you died on a cross in our place for our sins and then rose victorious and called us into new life. Lord, I thank you that many of us in this room will have stories of how you saved us. We'll be able to point to a kind of a moment, a time where you broke in, Lord. You, you called us to repentance and faith, Lord. We, we confessed our sins, we put our trust in you and we chose to spend the rest of our life following you, Lord. I want to thank you and praise you that you are 
the mighty God. You are God the Son. You are, you are the one who is above everything. Lord God, forgive us when we try and almost reduce you to a, a manageable size because our brains can't cope with Lord God, let us put you in your place high above, lifted up, glorious, majestic, King of kings, Lord of lords. We love you, we praise you, we worship you, mighty God. God's people said, Amen.